You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Well, we're back in the book of Philippians. Okay, we're going to be talking about having unity with one another. And we're really going to camp out on one verse that we're going to sort of dissect and uh, jump around a little bit in the book of Philippians. We should just read it in its entirety. Philippians 1, verse 27. Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So, as you can see, there's a lot to unpack here. The first thing we want to look at here is the first clause in the verse, where Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, if you're new here, this term here may seem familiar and yet still a little bit hazy. This word gospel just simply means the good news of Jesus Christ. And the Bible actually says that it has something great to say, that even though we have done things that condemn us and that cause us to have alienation with God, that he actually sent his son Jesus to come and pay for our sins and that he directly credits that to our account the moment we place our faith in Jesus. And so the great news is that It's something that is free of charge for us, even though it costs God everything. And that's the good news. That God wants to have a relationship with you, that he loves you, and that he has paved the way for you to enter into that relationship with him. So what we proclaim, what we declare is actually incredibly good news. And he says that we should live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Now, if the good news of Jesus Christ is that God gives you a free gift, that he just credits your account with righteousness the moment you receive Jesus' forgiveness, then in what way would you live in, in such a way that would be, make you worthy of the gospel? But I think it's helpful to understand that when we talk about living in a way that is worthy of the gospel, that simply means that we live in a way that is in keeping with the gift that God has given to us. Maybe thinking about it differently will help us. Imagine that you are driving in your 2010 Honda Civic that's real beat up to your parents' house. Some of you don't have to do too much imagining, right? So you arrive at your parents' house, and your parents are like, hey, we want to show you something. We have a surprise. And they take you into the garage, and there's this brand new car sitting there. And they say, we know that this is unexpected, but we came into a little bit of money, and we knew that you needed this, so we decided to buy you a new car. That would be amazing, right? Now, if your parents gave you a brand new car like that, You would probably try your best to make sure to take care of that car, not crash it, not abuse it, right? You would try to do things that would 
show gratitude and appreciation for the gift that your parents had given you. And so likewise, when we receive this incredible gift of forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ, it, it causes us to want to live a life for him out of gratitude for this incredible gift. And this entails a few things. He says that we should conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And this word conduct actually is a Greek word that means act as a citizen. And in Philippi, this would have actually resonated with them. Because the Philippians were actually Roman citizens by birth. Because Philippi was actually a Roman colony. And so they enjoyed a lot of the privileges and rights of a Roman citizen. Not all people who were living in Rome at the time were Roman citizens. A large population of Rome were actually slaves and people who were not considered citizens. So they didn't have some of the different uh, rights that you see the, the Philippians have. And so hearing Paul use this word would have helped them to come bring to mind this idea that once we come into a relationship with God, not only do we benefit by having his salvation, but also that we then become naturalized citizens of heaven. And so he's saying that because God has made you citizens of heaven and that you're just sort of passerbys in this life as you await your calling at home, that you should live in such a way that is actually fitting with your heavenly citizenship. And he suggests that we do this in a couple ways. He says in the second part of verse 27, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. So one thing that he says is that living in a way or a manner that is worthy of your citizenship in heaven is that you stand firm in one spirit. And what we see when we come into a relationship with God is that we not only experience profound unity with God, but we also experience profound unity with one another. And this isn't the kind of fakey, superficial kind of relationships that you see out in the world. This is more than just the the kind of um, relationship that you have whenever you, you join a group of people who have a common interest or a social club or something like that. What we're talking about is something much deeper than that, something that is forged through Christ. A few verses later, Paul actually elaborates on this even more by giving us the basis for this unity in the Spirit. In Philippians 2, verse 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, and if you have any tenderness and compassion, these are the four ifs of Philippians 2, 1. And this conditional that he uses here, if, implies a little bit more than just probability. Right? When you think about if this happens, 
typically what you're thinking about is, it's possible that this could happen. So there's an element of doubt. Whereas the construction in Greek implies a level of certainty in these, in these propositions. And so really, it should say something like, therefore, if and since you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if and since you have any comfort from his love, if and since you have any fellowship in the Spirit, and if and since you have any tenderness and compassion, he says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit, and being of one mind. So, the first thing he says that we should be certain of is that we are united with Christ. And you think about unity today. And a lot of people consider getting along with people or being around people who are very different than you and tolerating them as unity. And yet the Bible talks about unity as something totally different, that it's, it goes beyond that, that there is a depth of relationship that we can share with one another that's beyond just proximity, where we actually get to develop deep relationships with one another, where we feel free to be able to share about our lives with one another, where we have enough information about the people around us where we can encourage them, we can bear their burdens, we can show compassion when we know that they're hurting. And so what we're talking about here is a deep level of unity that is really unheard of in in the world. I remember the first time I came out to an event like this many years ago. I think it was like 21 years ago I showed up to something like this. And the first thing that really struck me was I walked into this room and even though it seemed like everybody was really different, one thing that I noticed is that people actually cared about one another. It seemed like people actually loved each other and knew each other well. And that really stood out to me as something really different compared to my experience out in the world where I was around a lot of people and yet a lot of my relationships were very superficial. Really, this unity comes about through God's work in us. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Paul says, For by one Spirit you were baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, and you were all made to drink of one Spirit. So, there are a few things that we need to explain here. First of all, he says that we are baptized into one body. And I think whenever we hear the word baptized, we think of, you know, a priest holding a baby, an infant, and taking some water and, you know, sprinkling water in its face vigorously, <laughs> making it cry. But this word baptize means more than water baptism. It actually just simply means to put into or to immerse. And so what Paul is saying here is that God has actually taken us and put us into Christ. That that actually becomes our new identity. And that as a result, Others who have also been identified with Christ, been united with him through the Spirit, also are united with one another. 
And so what we have here is what some theologians call the mystical union of believers. So the moment that we come to Christ, there are two things that happen. There is a unity that happens vertically, where now we are unified with God in a new way. Whereas before, we felt alienated, distant from him, guilty, cowering. And now, because of what Christ has done, we can come to him freely without worrying about him rejecting us. So there's profound unity that comes through forging a relationship with Christ. But then, as as we build relationships with other people, we experience the commonality that comes from being united with other believers in Christ as well. And he says that he places us into one body. One of the things you'll read or see in the New Testament is that Paul the Apostle talks about our spiritual community as if it is a physical body. And just like a body has many different parts that function together but are very unique, in the same way, God has assembled each and every believer within his spiritual community and have arranged each and every one of them in such a way that they can function properly and play their individual part in God's community. The body of Christ contains both unity and diversity like a real body. And that's really an amazing thing that we can be unified with one another and at the same time we can maintain our individuality, our uniqueness. I remember one of the real struggles I used to have when I first came around, maybe after the first year, was I love the community. I love that people wanted to invest in me. I love the fact that I could actually play my part. But one of the things that started to like worry me a little bit was the fact that it seemed like I was starting to lose my sense of individuality because it was being swallowed up in the corporate identity of the church. And I remember sitting through a teaching where the, the Bible teacher was pointing out that in the body of Christ, we can actually have both unity and diversity. Because God has given each and every one of us a very unique and individualistic role to play. So much so that if you are missing or if you are not playing your part, then the rest of the body of Christ suffers. And so on the one hand, we can enjoy being a part of this incredible thing that God is doing, and yet we can preserve our sense of unity, or our individuality, and our uniqueness. Um, the other thing that Paul talks about, too, in Ephesians 4, verse 3, is that there is some effort on our part to maintain this unity that we have. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice he doesn't say, make every effort to try to find common ground with people so that you can develop unity with them. Or make every effort to try and find things that you like, that others like within God's community in order to forge some sense of unity. Instead, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. In other words, 
it's this unity that we have isn't something that we try to muster up. It's something that God gives to us. And so our, our job is just to not screw it up, right? Is to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He also says, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit. And so, uh, fellowship is this idea of sharing with one another. That we can share the life of Christ that we have with other believers. And that leads to real closeness and a dynamic spiritual community where people look on and see something different about what we have. And so we can have fellowship with one another that is truly unique and different. Now, I think the reason why Paul was bringing this up was in part because there was infighting in this group. And we know that later, in chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, that Paul actually calls out these two leading women within the church at Philippi for a conflict that they were involved in. He says, I plead with Euodia and plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Now, imagine this. Typically, whenever Paul would send a letter to a city like this, they would read this letter publicly, probably in a, in a room like this with hundreds of people. And can you imagine like Paul the Apostle calling you out in the middle of his letter and being like, hey, and by the way, you know, Conrad and John need to, to put down their differences and cool it on their argument, arguing. You'd just be like, oh gosh, you know, like, how did he find out? Who's the rat, you know? And so... Paul was serious about this. He knew that there was a lot of dangers that can come about whenever disunity starts to creep into our community. Division among believers in Christ can really harm God's spiritual community. It really has the potential to, to destroy God's community. I remember one time going and visiting a church, a large church in Kentucky, many years ago, and I remember walking into the auditorium for their Sunday morning service. And this place was enormous. This place had a 10,000-person capacity seating. And just to give you some scale, this is a 1,000-person auditorium. And when I walked in there, there were hundreds of people in there. And I looked at my clock and I was like, huh. Uh, maybe I got the time wrong. Uh, but then the service started. So I realized that maybe only a few hundred people were going to show up. And so we sat through the whole thing. and It was like 45 minutes. And afterward, I walked up to some of the people who were there in attendance. And I said, so what's with this? Why are there only a few hundred people here in such a big auditorium? And they said, a few years ago, there was a huge division in our church. And... More than four-fifths of our, our entire church left over this. And it was really a stunning reminder of how important it is to guard the unity that God has given to us. I've seen, even on a smaller scale, even in our own church, 
home churches buckle due to division within their home church. And so it's important for us to play our part to keep the unity, to maintain the unity that God has given to us. Fortunately for a lot of us, we enjoy incredible unity that a lot of people in the world don't experience. I'm sure that a lot of you, when you first, you know, when COVID first hit, many of you were really happy that you were living in a ministry house with other believers. You probably enjoyed being able to spend more time with your roommates because you were working from home or doing virtual classes. And so a lot of people actually were doing pretty well during the first few months of the pandemic. And then year one ticks away. And now you're sitting in your living room and just the mere sound of your roommate chewing with their mouth open incites murderous rage. A lot of us, we're experiencing quarantine fatigue. It's wearing on us. It's wearing on our relationships. We find ourselves bored, listless, directionless, depressed, anxious. And all of those things are fertile ground for division and conflict. And so Paul is saying to you, he's saying to me, you need to do your part in maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Also, the light of Christ, which is projected through God's community, will grow dim if we don't maintain this unity. One of the things that God wants to do is to use our community as a light in this dark world. You know, today we live in a world that is still racially divided. We live at a time where there is growing distance between those who are wealthy and those who are impoverished. We still see that women and people who are elderly are being mistreated at work or being discriminated against. And one of the things that God wants to show through our community is that we're totally different. That he is broken down the dividing wall between people socioeconomically, racially. And one of the things he does, especially in the book of Ephesians, is he encourages those who are being mistreated not to view themselves as second-class citizens. Look at what he says in Ephesians 2 verse 19. He says, You Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with God's holy people, and you are members of God's family. God, through Jesus Christ, has leveled the playing field. And so in our community, we don't have the haves and the have-nots. We're all one in Christ, and we enjoy the benefits of our heavenly citizenship. You know, this is one of the things that really captivated my attention when I first started coming around, was just the, the diversity that I saw. And it wasn't just racial diversity, it was socioeconomic diversity, but also cultural diversity. I remember years ago, I went on my first vacation with the college ministry. There was like maybe 200 people at the time in college ministry. And 
one of the guys that I went with and I roomed with at, at the beach where we used to vacation was this green-haired, white punk rocker from the suburbs. And, you know, I was like from Chicago. I, was, I, I grew up on the streets and was just roving around the streets, getting into trouble. And so we couldn't be any different from one another, any more different from one another. And it was such a weird experience being, you know, rooming with this guy who was totally different than me because we would share all of these things with one another. And I found that we had commonality despite many of the superficial differences we had. I remember the first time he, he played some punk rock music for me. I, I sat in amazement as I listened what sounded like sounds from distant galaxies <laughs> as he played his music to me. And yet one of the things that really blew me away was the fact that even though we were so different, as different as, possible, as, as people could be, one of the things that, that struck me was that I actually found myself opening up to him in ways that I didn't feel comfortable opening up with people I had known for many, many years, who I consider to be my closest friends. And so when people see that, people who are totally different, loving one another, having unity with one another in ways that our world really tries to but can't, there's something different about that. And that's exactly what Jesus envisioned for our community. He says, all men will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. That we will shine like, like stars in a dark world. Now, what are some of the causes of infighting and disunity? I think, first of all, jealousy is a prime candidate. Think about what James says in James 4 1, uh, and 2. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you can't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. So jealousy is one of the driving factors behind conflict in our relationships. We see something that other, someone else has or they own, and we want that. Whether it's their reputation, whether it's their money or possessions, maybe it's their romantic relationships, maybe it's their lack of hardship. And as we grow jealous and we covet what they have, we find ourselves growing bitter toward them and resentful and viewing them as an opponent or a competitor rather than a brother or sister in Christ. And yet, the thing about this is, those seeds of resentment and bitterness are so insidious that it's sometimes hard for us to even see. Here's some ways maybe to detect whether or not jealous bitterness has, has started to crop up in your heart. You start to focus on the negative aspects of that person. You also have a strong aversion to being around them. Or you feel like it's unfair when they succeed or get something they don't deserve. What about secretly being happy when they fall but outwardly expressing sympathy? <laughs> oh, that's so sad. But then you turn around and you're like, yes. <laughs> what about gossiping about that person hoping to poison other people's perception of them? Or qualifying people's praise about a person when they're not around. 
You hear people say, oh, so-and-so is so great at golf. You're like, I've seen people who are better. (laughs) Just saying. I mean, he was shooting at the airport golf course. I mean, it's not that challenging. You know, another thing, another cause for infighting and disunity that we see is that God's enemy is at work. Oh, yes. One of the things the Bible reveals to us is that God has an enemy, Satan, who seeks to divide our community. Think about what James says in James 3, verse 14 through 16. He says, If you harbor bitterness, envy, and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. One of the things that God's enemy wants to do is he wants to divide and conquer. He knows that if he can pit us against each other, that it will distract us from the kind of unity and the the mission that God has put in front of us. And so he will sow small seeds of dissension in our heart, poisoning our view of other people or inflaming conflict that's already brewing by causing us to read into other people's motives or viewing their actions or their words through a very cynical lens. And it's interesting because I've been in this situation where I had gotten to the point where I looked at another brother in Christ and thought to myself, we are 100% in opposition to one another. I viewed him as my enemy even though we had so much in common in Christ. And it took a third party actually coming in and pointing out, I wonder if God's enemy is involved here causing you to judge his motives and to believe things about him that aren't actually true. And it's almost like I I snapped out of this haze and realized, you know what, I, I didn't even realize that he was influencing my mind here. Also, he says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So this leads then to the final clause that we want to look at in Philippians 1.27, which talks about the mission that God gives to us through which we can actually be unified. He says, I know that You are striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So on the one hand, he calls on us to stand firm in the spirit that we can enjoy unity because God has given us unity in Christ. But then there's this other layer beneath that, a a deeper level of unity that we can experience by throwing in on the mission that God has given to us. And he says it's for the faith of the gospel. You know, one of the things that God says is that the most important thing that the church can accomplish on earth is to share the love of Jesus with those who don't know him. Now, you might be sitting here and you might think to yourself, that part I'm not sure I really like. It's cool that you have faith. It's really cool that you are committed to following God. But, you know, that's one of the things that you need to do is just sort of keep it to yourself. 
Don't talk to other people about your faith. And you certainly shouldn't try to convince other people to become Christians. That's kind of messed up. And yet you have to sort of put yourself in our shoes, right? If God says that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, actually brings salvation, that it actually can cause people to avoid condemnation, then it is truly one of the most important things that we can devote our lives to. There's really nothing with more importance than serving and loving those who've devoted their lives to serving Christ and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the, those who don't, or with those who don't know him. And so one of the things that you'll experience as you grow in your faith is that there is this sense that God is calling you to devote yourself to the mission that he's called us to accomplish. Now, some of you have been around for a short period of time. You love the community for all the things that I mentioned earlier. You love the fact that people invest in you, that they accept you even though you're really different. You love the fact that you can be open about your life and not really have to worry about people judging you. And yet, one of the things that you're going to notice soon is that this whole picture of community starts to tarnish over time. It loses its luster. And part of the reason it's going to feel that way is because one of the main ways that God unifies us is by calling on us to work together for the faith of the gospel. And that's where you start to really experience the closeness that comes from being a part of God's spiritual community. Now, here's the thing. Some of us are probably like, I've, I've tried that. And it doesn't really work. And maybe you've, take some stab, you've taken some stabs at it. And you're always sort of evaluating, like, okay, I'm putting in here. That made me feel pretty good. And then maybe another time you try it and you're like, that didn't feel very good. That was very tiring. So you're sort of assessing, I'm investing here, but am I getting the kind of return that I expect? And if you approach it that way, you're going to be disappointed. You really need to commit and try with all of your heart. It's kind of like, I remember when I, I learned how to dive uh, for the first time into a pool headfirst off a diving board. I remember I was really scared and a lot of my friends were sort of goading me like, oh man, you're chicken, you should just... You're not going to do it. So as I got onto the diving board, the first time that I dived into the pool, I learned one important lesson. You need to commit. You cannot hesitate. Because if you hesitate, you're, the water is going to give you a full body slap. <laughs> kind of like this lady, right? <laughs> That was me the first time I, I dived into a pool. Let it sink in, yeah. That slap. Doesn't work out too well, right? You need to commit. You need to give yourself over to this. And what happens is, as you give yourself over to this as a lifestyle, you'll see the fulfillment and the joy that others are expressing when they live for God. Finally, he says that we should strive together as one. So this word in Greek 
actually means fighting side by side. It's a military term. And actually, it was a term that they used for the Greek phalanx, where soldiers would fight in closed formation with shields interlocked with one another. And this is how Alexander the Great defeated uh, the Persians and essentially conquered most of the known world at the time. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie 300. As they are protecting the hot gates, as the Persians are coming, they form this phalanx and basically are pushing the Persians. And as the Persians lose ground, the spearmen are killing um, the infantrymen from the Persians. I love this scene where Leonidas uh, actually describes how the phalanx works. Raise your shield. Sire. Raise your shield as high as you can. Your father should have taught you how a phalanx works. We fight as a single impenetrable unit. That is the source of our strength. Each Spartan protects the man to his left, thigh to neck with his shield. A single weak spot and the phalanx shatters. From thigh to neck, Ephialtes. Yeah. So, um... You know, this idea of fighting side by side, you know, we're unified. You know, even one point of disunity can disrupt what God is doing, can cause us to lose sight of the mission that God has given to us. And as we strive together with one another, we experience a deep unity with one another. I don't know if you have seen interviews of people who've fought in war, But these men describe the kind of experience and the closeness that they shared with fellow soldiers in their company who have gone through incredible suffering, incredible hardship. And that kind of unity that they experience with one another is something that they don't have with anybody else. And so one of the things that you will experience if you join in with God's mission to carry it out is that you will have this incredible unity that comes from serving side by side with others, striving together for the sake of the gospel. Let's draw a few points of application. First of all, you can experience deep unity with others through Jesus. You may be here tonight and you really like the community. And yet you may have come to realize recently that you actually do not have a relationship with God. If that's the case, I challenge you to receive this gift that God desperately wants you to have. He's paid an incredible price for you to have it. And the only thing that he asks is that you Come to him with humility, with open hands, and receive this gift. And once you do that, you join our community. There are no um, 
you know, roles for our church that you, you, bec- you, know, you have to sign or uh, become a member. You become a member by actually having a relationship with God. Secondly, are you doing your part to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Maybe you're in conflict right now. Are you, are you doing your best to settle that conflict? Are you giving people the benefit of the doubt? Are you willing to set aside grievances that you have and willing to forgive instead of holding a grudge? And finally, throw in and experience the unity that's forged by carrying out God's mission. I'll tell you, in the long term, if, even if you enjoy the community that we have, if you don't throw in on the mission, the excitement that you feel right now is not going to last very long. And you're going to find yourself distracted or drawn to other things. The true joy that comes from following God comes from serving Him. What a privilege it is to be part of your your spiritual community. We thank you that you make that possible through your son Jesus. I pray, God, that we can not only appreciate the unity that you have given us, but also that we would play our part in preserving it. Uh, We know that your enemy is uh, constantly afoot trying to uh, sow dissension and disaffection in our hearts. And uh, we pray that you would reveal to us ways that he's doing that, that we can um, see that, that uh, he's at work in our lives. I pray finally for those of us uh, who don't know you, who have never started a relationship with you, that we would unify ourselves with you by receiving what Jesus has done. And we thank you for anybody who did that in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.